0: Please open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, to chapter 8, we'll study verse 28, we'll read verses 28 through 30. As you turn there, an interesting thing for you to know as a congregation, your elders, we sing the last stanza of that to close every one of our session meetings, because it is a blessing to dwell in the house of the Lord. Romans chapter 8, this is a pastoral chapter in the book of Romans, very specifically. All the chapters of the book of Romans, every verse, every word, shepherds the souls of the people of God, but chapter 8 very specifically is speaking about life in the Spirit of God. Life for Christians to live even in the midst of suffering and hardship and also in the midst of of the future hope of the coming day of resurrection, the return of Jesus Christ, where we will be freed from sin and all of its effects, made perfect in righteousness in Christ Jesus. So I want to direct your attention to this again this morning, that Paul is writing for your encouragement. This is for you to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, to stand firm in him, and to be made strong until the day that he comes yet again. You may take note that the sermon title is The Golden Chain. Romans chapter 8 verses 28 through 30 have been called by Bible readers The Golden Chain because there is this sequence, these chained truths of the salvation and the well-keeping of God's people. And so this morning we're not going to study the whole of the golden chain with all of its links. We're going to study verse 28. This necessary truth that then allows us to study and benefit from the remainder of it. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. And we know... And those whom he justified, he also glorified. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey, and drippings from the honeycomb is the law of the Lord. Let us praise God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak and are not a God silent. That Lord, you are a shepherd in the midst of his sheep. Lord, I do pray that this morning, as we study your word and we hear your voice, that we would draw near to you, that Lord, you would give meaning to our joys. O oh, Lord, to the inconsequential things of our lives that seem to be mundane. O oh, Lord, that you would direct us to your eternal purpose in our suffering. Oh, Lord, help us that we might stand strong a people in every way, united with Christ Jesus as we anticipate his coming. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, one of the great struggles for most Christians is to have the things that they know, the doctrine, the truth, all of the wonderful things that the Bible teaches and the things that we believe, to have those things have a meaningful impact on our life experiences. It's been said that there is a terrible distance of 12 inches between the brain and the heart, and that's really the struggle of most Christians. I think that is certainly a struggle in this church, that the truths that bind us together in faith with Jesus Christ, that those things will not only be propositions and theoretical statements, but that they would be life-giving and nourishing, that they would be for us grace in time of need. And the Apostle Paul understands this, that the things that we believe should minister to us as we live, it's a terribly important truth that we should have hope, that we should be looking forward to what is then also coming. And Paul knows this. And whenever he writes, again, I've mentioned that this is a pastoral chapter in the book of Romans. It's not just theological. It's not just proposing something to you. But Paul is trying to take you by the hand. And to take the things that dwell in the meadows that reside between the ears to the warm summer breezes of the heart. And so, as we study verse 28 this morning, I want us to see, firstly, a sure knowledge. A sure knowledge. And then also in verse 28, the marriage of love and purpose. The marriage of love and purpose. You may have asked yourself the question, why isn't the pastor just going to preach verses 28 through 30 in one sermon? That would be a disservice. There's so much here. And the thing I want to propose to you this morning is verse 28. It's a pretext. It's a necessary fact to get us then to verses 29 through 30. These things rely upon one another. Verse 28 shows us the sure knowledge of the sovereignty of God. This wonderful fact. And as Paul begins to direct our attention and to draw us along with him, he begins with the words... And we know. And we know. One of the first things I want to show you is that the Apostle Paul is joining with our experience. When he says, and we know, he's saying, I as a Christian with you as a Christian. I experience the troubles. I experience the difficulties. Just as you have. I'm there with you. I know what it is to suffer. Paul says he suffered in great ways. He talks about being cast over a wall and stoned and beaten and cursed and rejected. The Apostle Paul knows what hardship is. And he's saying here in verse 28 that this is knowledge that comforts him. Again, this isn't theoretical. It's practical. It's truth brought down to the heart. The God of heaven touching his creatures Upon the earth and we know it's his faith with you, with me. But it's not only this solidarity one with the other but it's knowledge. It's knowledge. He's saying it's not only we're together but that we know something together and that it is truth that he has as his aim. And I looked at this verse of scripture and You could well translate if you wanted to. And we are assured. And we are assured of this truth he's going to describe. This absolute, complete knowledge, this awareness is sure. That's the point here. If you are a language person, this isn't present, active, indicative. This is perfect tense active, indicative, a knowledge that is firm and complete and sure and reliable and untouchable. That's what he means by this. He's sure and we know and we are assured of this wonderful truth that we're going to study in the remainder of the chapter. But I point this out, this idea of sure knowledge to this simple fact that you and I need to be confronted with this morning and that is that you can know things and you may say but pastor yeah that's pretty simple i believe i can know things and you may list off a number of things that you know you know that when you're sitting in the car the traffic light changes from red to green that green means go and when it changes back in the opposite direction that red means stop you know that that's you're pretty sure of it maybe you know Uh, The correct amount of financial ability that you have in your bank account. You've seen the numbers. It's data. You you know it. Uh, Some of you may say that you know a number of things, like your prescription that you need with your glasses. Maybe you know your address, these Data-based things. You know that. You don't have issues with that. But whenever I press you to things that are profound and things that are transcendent to eternal truths, we live in a culture that would say you can't know those things. You can't be sure of those things. And some people would even say that in the reading of the Bible, oh, there are a multitude of ways of reading it, and how can you know that the way you read it is the true way and not the way that this other person reads it? It seems like you're saying two different things about the same verse of scripture how can you ever know that anything is true that you are true or this person's true and people just give up they throw the hand of cards into the air they say well maybe philosophically truth is possible but it's entirely unknowable and Paul says no Christian there are things that you not only can know but you must know and this is one of those things This truth that he is expounding in verse 28. You not only can know this thing with absolute certainty, you should know it. And before we dive into what that truth is, I want to invite you this morning to ask yourself throughout the whole sermon do I know this? Do I have this assurance? Am I sure of this thing? Am I, is what he's saying and what the Bible is teaching here, do I know it? Do I know it in my head? Is it in my heart? Do I hold on to it? And I want to tell you, Christian, you should join me this morning in laboring to know this. So that you can be with the Apostle Paul. And that you can also say with him we know this i know this and this truth shapes my life and so the question that's already been begged what is paul knowing what's he trying to encourage us to know and you may be very aware of this verse of scripture some of you probably have it framed maybe it's in your kitchen your hallway maybe you've got it on a sticker on the bumper of your car However, but do you know it? This thing that Paul says in verse 28 of chapter 8: And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's what he's telling you, he knows. All things work together for good. That's simple. In theory. In practice, it's a hard thing to get from here to here. It's it's really hard to get your head around in all honesty. But I want to break it down into the different portions of what he's teaching. The different aspects of this truth that the Apostle is teaching you and me this morning. The things that he wants us to live by. Not just have a theoretical knowledge of. And the first piece of it is this. He says, all things, this comprehensive aspect, all things, everything works together for good. That first piece, all things. That means simply, yes, everything, every rock, every pebble, every event in your life, every breath, every cup of coffee, every tea ball practice, Every opportunity that you take and are blessed by, every opportunity that you take and you fail at, everything, every laugh, every illness, every joy, every sadness, every ounce of gain, every single loss and deficit, every good moment, every moment of suffering, everything is under the sovereign power of God. That's what Paul is saying. All of these things are under him. That's the first aspect of this truth. That not a breath, that not a thought, that not an affection, nothing is apart from him. Nothing is outside of his plan. And you say, but Pastor, I get it. You know, all things means all things. It's not that complicated. Why are you getting so worked up about it? You know it here, but do you know it here? How do you think of life? How do you think of it? Do you think of all things every day as being under his feet, submitted to his rule, under the authority of his crown and at the end of his scepter? Do you think of all of these things being controlled and ordained and ordered and organized by him? Do you really? Or are you like me, a finite human that sees all things seemingly happening all at once like this white noise of chaos that overwhelms you? You can answer that however you want in your heart, but I'll simply say if you're like me, and I bet that you probably are, you feel overwhelmed. And yes, you believe in the sovereignty of God. You're a biblical Christian. You know his grace and salvation. You rely upon it. But day to day, there's so many things, so many hardships, so many turns, so many uncertain things that you find yourself pelted with the stones of fear and anxiety. All of these things you don't know and that Satan takes the opportunity to whisper into your ears, these are outside of his control and they're certainly outside of yours. Paul's saying, no, that's not true. All things, all things are in his hand. All things are subject to him. He is the ruler of all things. Nothing is outside of his control. He is altogether sovereign. Simple aspect of the truth, number one, all things are under his sovereign control. But then that's not exactly what Paul says. Paul says all things work together for good. Hang on a minute. We've already talked about what all things means, all these different aspects, and Pastor, you didn't even really get close. I mean, really, you didn't say anything about my coming vacation. You didn't say anything about my, you know, busted tire last week. You didn't say anything about the bad grade I made. You didn't say anything about the relationship that I've gotten messed up with another person. How can those things be really coherent with the idea that not only he controls all things, not only that he can turn everything out to a good end, but that they work together. See, that's what Paul's proposing to you. That they work together for good. And so you've got to back up and you've got to stand, you know, at a distance. You know, I can remember being a kid doing what I complain to my boys most days of the week that they shouldn't do, climbing very high in a tree. You ever do that? I think there's a reason why children do that, because they're little. They're really close to the ground. Their perspective is just really small, even smaller than ours, even those. Our perspective is usually kind of about this big, really. Uh, children climb in trees so they can see, don't they? So they can look down and they can see from over, you know, the perspective they would normally get. You and I, we fly in airplanes. Most of you all have done that numerous times and we'll do it even this summer. You see things you wouldn't otherwise see. You say, wow, that that's much closer than I anticipated. I always thought that was... In a different town, in a different state. or Look, it's just so close. It's so near to us. And so you have this perspective of all the different things. And you see that they have some relationship to the other. Well, Paul is saying to us that in the power and the control and the perspective of God, that he is active in every single thing So that these things link together and work, not in general, but specifically for good for his people. That's a big idea. And if you're sharp and you're careful, you'll say, but pastor, hang on a second. God is not the author of evil and evil is part of that all things, isn't it? Yeah, it is. God's not the author of evil. Yes, you're correct. God doesn't make us do evil things. However, we should be reminded of the testimony of Genesis 50-20 where Joseph looked at his brothers and he said, you intended it for evil but God intended it for good as they cast him into a well and sold him into slavery and there he is at the aid not only of his brothers but of his entire family. That is how something of this great magnitude works that we intend certain things for wickedness and evil and yet the Lord then takes and works them also for good and you say well that's so hard to get my head around how can I understand this how can I gain something of the perspective of God how can I get it how can I even remotely begin to approach it that God can take my wickedness and then turn it absolutely for my good let me propose something to you That God's perspective is like a curriculum. Are you familiar with this idea? A curriculum, like school. Okay? If you've ever been in any good school, and you've ever completed any course of study, if you've ever done this sort of thing, you've had a list, and it's got checks by it, and it's a variety of things. They're not all the same. Sometimes they're radically different. You have this project. You like that project. You have this other project. You absolutely hate it. You're good at this piece of the math assignment. You're terrible at the other. Yet, you've got to get the box marked and checked. You did it. And you go on to the next and check that box. And you go down and you complete the course of study, one after another after another. And the goal is what? Well, it's to get to the end so that your classwork is done, right? It's done. And somebody may ask you, how was it? How was that class? How was the curriculum? And you'll say, well, oh, I learned so much about the life cycle of birds, and I loved it. But I really could not care about the decomposition of logs in the forest, which makes dirt. It was horrible. There were good parts, there were bad parts, and all of these things came together to the point where at the end of it, I could say that, yes, I have some perspective of these things, and yes, there is an end, Right? There's something of that in this. And you say, but pastor, it's so hard. You're telling me something that's it's, it's really difficult. You're using these kind of shallow illustrations. Who really cares about that? That's nowhere near the kind of reality of my life. My life has not just the boring topic of the composition of soil, but really the horrific topic Of evil upon the earth. The wicked oppressing the innocent. Of people losing life. Of people suffering with disease and dying. Of families being ripped in half. This is so much more complicated. And you're telling me that the laughs of a child are coherent with the wickedness of even the worst things that I can imagine on this earth. And I will just simply say, friend, yes, that's what's being said here. That's what's being said here. All these things work together like interlaced ties so that the Lord brings you one step further as his child. One portion farther down the path, nearer to him, closer to him, more like his son, more holy more independent of the sinful desires of your heart. Before I was your pastor, I pastored a church in a small town called Yazoo City. Little church, very faithful church. I had some of the most godly elders that I've ever known, and we have some wonderful elders in this church. One of them was uh, a man I looked up to at seminary. His name was Will Thompson. And he was a lion in the presbytery and at the general assembly and he was a lamb in the midst of God's people he could be bold courageous brash sometimes a little bit offensive and he could be sweet as honey he's an imperfect man he rebuked me well he rebuked me poorly he did me great benefit he wounded me all those same things because he was a human being he was a person alongside me and a Christian. And maybe after the first year, I think it was the first year we were here, I got a phone call and he and I were talking. And he was at great age and I'd known that before I left, he had struggled with, with prostate cancer for a long time. He'd been a physician. He knew all the things whenever I was his pastor there in Yazoo. He would tell me all the different things happening in his body in a very careful way and all the terrible things that he was still dealing with. He would clinically describe it to me. But this phone call was different. It wasn't the same voice on the other end of the phone. His voice was weak. And he said, Nick, I'm dying. I've been struggling with this for eight years. And, well, God has decided to quit healing me. And I said, Will, I'm so sorry. And my voice just started trembling. It's so hard even to think of even now. He told me, because this was a man that could cook like a chef, he and I loved to go and eat food together and enjoy a fine meal, and he said, Nick, I I don't even want to eat anymore. I'm just ready to go home, and I said, Will, I know, I know you are, and he said to me, you know, I've been thinking about this, and God is teaching me something right now, and I said, what's that? He said, Every single thing in my life prepared me for now. I said, what do you mean, well?" He said, you know, the Lord gave me enough fine meals that whenever I didn't want to eat anymore, I wouldn't miss them at all. He said he gave me enough rebellion and enough cursing and enough anger and enough failure that even in the season where my body is failing, I don't have any more anger or cursing for him. I'm prepared for this moment because he's worked in me and he's professed his faith or his grace to me and his love to me my whole life. That I know that even whenever I'm laying here and I'm dying, it's not because he doesn't love me and that he's sustaining me and that I can be sure that I'm going to see him. All my life has prepared me to die. It's like a curriculum bunch of check boxes something that at any point in his life he couldn't see the whole spectrum he hadn't climbed high enough in the tree to see down from heaven across time and through decades of the purpose and the power of God yet the Lord had seen it the entire time and every moment every step had gone into his life so that he would simply be able to breathe his last already in the arms of Christ And you say, but pastor, it's so hard to get my head around. I don't think that you're supposed to. But I do think you're supposed to know this truth. So that there is comfort for you. Whenever things don't seem good. Whenever things actually in the experience that you have in the moment are not good that you can look in hope and faith that even this God will turn to my good and his glory. Even this thing, even this horrible, heartbreaking thing, even this, this doesn't remove his love from me. This is not out of his control. All of these things are under his feet and I don't know where he's going with this, but I trust him. And so I'm going to walk and I'm going to endure because I know that this will not last forever. This will turn. This will be redeemed. It will be made good. This wonderful truth, this thing you need to know, even if you can't comprehend it. This truth that you base your life on, even if it's something that he holds within his hands And hasn't turned the page for you to see everything yet. Secondly, in this verse, I want us to see the marriage of love and purpose. Because if you've been listening, you've thought, well, Pastor, didn't you skip like a huge piece there? I mean, how could you read verse 28 and then not preach this glaring thing? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Those two magnificently large things, everything I've already said, it's, it's really dependent, isn't it? And friends, I'm not talking about the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over those who love him and those who hate him. He's sovereign over the wicked. He's sovereign over the righteous. He's sovereign over the reprobate and the elect. Everything is under his feet, all things still under his feet. The bigger question is, What is it going toward? This good thing, this good outcome, who's that for? Who are we really talking about? Well, it's, as Paul says, it's for those who love God. It's for those who are called according to his purpose. And you say, well, Pastor, that seems cold. That's scripture. It's not something I'm making up. It's not up to me. This is what the Lord is saying in the scriptures. He works things for good to those who love him and to those whom he is at work within calling and bringing his purpose to bear in their lives. But these two things, love and purpose, they're not disconnected. They're really not. These are two aspects, almost two different sides of the same coin. They're distinguishable, they're inseparable in the life of the Christian. Love for God and the purpose of God. So first off, I want to deal with each of these individually and then I want to turn to them together as a married wonderful fact and so those who love God this is who the Lord is working all these things out for this is a truth for believers that there is a good end that there is a coming rest a coming blessing an ultimate and wonderful future it's a good thing that these things work for the Christian and you've We've talked about that at length. You know that. But what's at stake here? And Well, it's this fact. That God's work here is not only or simply the consequence of his divinity. He is divine. He has control over all things. He's sovereign because of he, who he is as a person. A divine and eternal God. That's true. This is also not simply true because of his creatorship, that he created all things, that he's all-powerful in his creation, and that he has all the freedom in all of creation, in all of the universe, to do whatever he wills. No, rather, this is a personal fact of his sovereignty. So we've seen God with his sovereignty, whose arms really have no length because they go on forever. It's brought right down to you. This is the personal fact of his sovereignty that he works things good for you and for me that this God who controls everything every time you breathe and even the day when you can't breathe anymore this God this God loves you and he has worked in you and you love him and he's aware of it well that's significant Oh, it really is, because we've already gone to this place where we've thought about an all powerful God. And whenever you start thinking about an all powerful God and all of his wonder, all of his attributes, if you're at all honest, you end up like a person looking straight into the sun and you're blinded by it. And you feel it's unrelatable because you're very, extremely limited. If I stand here and I don't move my foot, I can't reach and touch that stone. It's all I got. My arms are only so long. How can it possibly be this God, this great God, be involved in me? It's because of a relationship of love that the Lord has done a work in our hearts. He's given us new eyes and new ears. He's given us this wonderful thing of a new heart fashioned within us. So that not only we know that there is a creator, not only that we know that we are his creature, not only that we know that he saved some, but rather he saved us. And he sent his son to die for us. The personal fact and reality and the personal truth that we love God and that he cares for us and that he orders every second of our lives. And is pleased to bring all these things for good for you and for me. And you say, that's all good, Pastor. I get it, love. Younger people in the room, maybe even others, you think, wow, this is awfully emotional. It's not something I'm terribly comfortable with. But let me say, whenever hardship hits, let me point you to this fact. It's personal. You will not help but be emotional. And it will be deep and it will be heavy because you are a creature. And you will need to know this on this level that God is not indifferent from the things that you struggle with. He knows you in your heart and he knows the struggles you have because the relationship between you and him is one bound in love. And he's not content to simply remove his hand. But he engages with you as a father engages with a child because he loves you and because you love him. The sovereign working of God ordering your life is a relationship bound on love and also his purpose. Who are the people that know that these things are ordered for their own good? Those who love God? those who are called according to his purpose. What does this mean? Well, it's speaking about the effectual calling of God, where the Lord speaks to the heart of a lost person, a person that the Bible says is dead in their trespasses and sins in which they once walked according to the counsel of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. The God who reaches down and in the midst of that makes us alive together with Christ because of his great love with which he loved us. Out of his heart of mercy. This effectual calling where the Lord takes a person who's dead in their sins, who's at odds with him and converts them. Gives them eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to love him. That's the first aspect of this. Called according to his purpose. These are people the Lord is at work in. But what is this other portion, the called according to His purpose? What are the purposes of God? And I'll tell you this much there is not a month that goes by in ministry where I don't have some conversation with one of you or someone I know where the question is simply asked what is God doing in all of this? It's usually a big move, the loss of a job. Maybe it is a new opportunity. There's some of us here this morning probably asking the question, willing to walk in faith, saying, what is God going to do whenever I go to Colorado, whenever I go to Montana? What's God going to do whenever I go into this new season of life? You as a church may be asking the question, what is God doing? What is his purpose in bringing people into and out of our church, expanding our hearts and love for one another and then breaking our hearts as we're split and taken to other places? What is his purpose I wish I could tell you his purpose because I know what you want. You want like a paragraph that tells you everything. You don't want two or three. You just want one. You're just like me. You don't want to read a lot, think a lot. You just want to know. I can't tell you his purpose, but I can tell you this, that in this passage of Scripture, the overarching purpose, the great end goal, the thing that you're going to, the finish line, and the words that are on its banner say this, the glory of God. That's where it's aiming The purpose of God is his glory in and for you and me as his people. Verses 18 all the way through the end of this section have to do with this. Verse 18, chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. As we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. What's the purpose of God? Well, it's to bring you all the way home, Christian. It's to help you in the beginning of your walk with Him and the salvation and the calling and the redemption of your soul into the life that you live to kill sin and to grow in holiness as you endure so many different things, so many hardships. That you don't fall away and fall over and fall down in the life before him, but rather you continue to walk and are brought all the way into his arms. Not in your strength, but in his strength. In spite of your weakness that is present within you, within me, with the weakness of your faith, there is still the strength of his love for you and his compassion to you. His purpose is to bring you all the way into the coming inheritance. Why did he give his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life? That's the end goal. That's the great reward. That is at the very most his purpose for you, Christian, to bring you all the way home. So I told you we'd look at love and purpose, but how do these things go together? Pastor, the whole point is the marriage of these things, right? These things agree with one another, cleave to one another. And I want to direct your attention to this. These are two parts of faith necessary in every believer. What do you mean? Paul's not accidental here. A heart for God in hope of the promises of God are for me and you essential things for living every single day. How can you live in the midst of these things and endure certain things if not for a heart that loves the Lord and has a knowledge of his love for you? And how can you endure these things if you don't know that there is a day that is coming where these things are going to end? These things make up faith, the assurance that the Lord loves you and that he's going to bring you all the way into his kingdom, all the way into his arms. And that there is a day that is coming where these things will not remain. That is the future hope of the faith of the Christian. That is the object out in the distance that we look for, that we long for, that we wait for with patience that the Apostle Paul has been pointing to. These two sides of our faith. And so let me encourage you, brother and sister in Christ don't just look at one without the other. Don't say, yeah, this is horrible. I know that God's going to do something with it and forget the fact that he presently loves you. Don't only remember that he presently loves you without the fact that he is bringing you out of things and into rest and into blessing. They both need to be together in the Christian life. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you for your mercy and your ministry in us and to us. That Lord, we can look into this unsearchable truth of your holy and powerful and sovereign working in our lives. This truth we can't get our heads around. And that Lord, you intend it for our comfort and our help. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be still within this truth. That, Lord, we would have faith in you and faith based on real and substantial things. A heart for you and the purpose you have for us. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.